This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Stuart Kelly. I'm the literary editor at Scotland on Sunday, and it's an absolute privilege and pleasure to be here today with Audrey Niffenegger. Now, as you all know, Audrey is most famous for The Time Traveller's Wife, which was an astonishing success, and put a more fantastical kind of literature firmly into the mainstream. But that's just a fragment of her oeuvre, her complete oeuvres. She's also the author of her new novel, her Fearful Symmetry, which we'll be talking about later. She's a very accomplished graphic novelist, including The Three Incestuous Sisters, and this new one, first serialized in The Guardian, uh, The Night Bookmobile. She's also been a guest selector for this year's program. And when I saw the authors that Audrey had chosen, they were the ones that immediately I wanted to go and see over the course of the next week. Can we just begin by talking a bit about that process of selecting? You've, yes. you've got three events with uh, Chris Adrian, with Neil Gaiman, and with Kelly Link. Mm -hmm. um, what, what attracts you to those authors? And is there something that they have in common? That <laughs> well, one thing they all have in common is their books are on my bookshelves. Um, <laughs> when, I, when I got the lovely email asking me to be a guest selector, I just went and stood in front of my library and started writing down names of people I really wanted to talk to in front of a lot of other people. And, um, and Kelly and Chris are people I very greatly admire. I've never met Chris Adrian, so that could be really interesting to just meet somebody and then go talk to them in front of a lot of people. Um, Kelly, I've met a number of times and really admire her work. Her, her book um, was published by Cangate here last year, The Pretty Monsters, which yeah. is a, an astonishing collection. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And Neil Gaiman, of course, I've known for quite some time. We actually met at a completely different literary festival in Sydney. And he was just immediately so nice and he was going to interview me on stage and I was terrified. And, uh, and he could not have been warmer or nicer or easier to talk to. And uh, a couple months ago, I interviewed him on stage in Chicago. And so we're just going to keep this thing going of running around the world, <laughs> talking about this and that in front of a lot of people. So. But they're, they're all authors like you who include the fantastical in stories that have real emotional impact. And is that part of the, the strand here that we're looking at authors who have taken what used to be thought of as fantasy as being something a bit childish and really adapted it for genuine emotional dilemmas, genuine political dilemmas? Well, I, I'm very mushy about defining genre and not genre. So I just read whatever it amuses me to read and try not to worry too hard about what the classification might be. So I have somehow attracted on my bookshelves a whole lot of people who love fantastical things. I mean, I'm also a big fan of Susanna Clarke and mm -hmm. you know, just lots and lots of people who spring out of the world of the fairy tale. And um, yeah, if you saw my total list, my total list had 20 people on it. And some of them were teaching in Nigeria and some of them just couldn't come and yeah and some of them were just too unbelievably big of a deal I guess <laughs> I don't know I don't know what that was about but anyway the um, it was very interesting to, to on a very small scale do what the people who organize festivals do I mean I was only trying to fill a few slots they have to fill hundreds um, I thought we'll have a little bit of a reading to begin with and then Audrey and I'll have a chat on stage and then it's really over to you. What makes this festival such a great festival is the questions we get from the audience. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to ask Audrey. Do you want to read from um, Her Fear for Symmetry or, or The Night Book It's actually easier to read from Symmetry. I've reading, giving readings from comic books is strangely difficult because you're like the story lady. You show the pictures and it's, it doesn't quite work out. So <laughs> um, I'll read a little bit from, from this puppy. Um, say something amusing while I'm finding my place. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's really pretty good on the spot. The, um, <laughs> I suppose the, the Night Bookmobile was a short story first, so if we planned this better in advance, we could have had the short story yeah. that then became the graphic novel. I don't want to preempt too much talking about that process, but have you found something I have, and I don't yeah. have to keep on wittering now? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you can tell we rehearsed, huh? <laughs> 
Um, okay, yeah. I'm also getting completely blind in my middle age here. There we go. Um, this is a chapter called The History of Her Ghost. And um, the, the thing that gets this entire novel going is a woman named Elizabeth Noblin dies, um, actually fairly young. She's 44. And um, she lives in a flat whose back garden adjoins Highgate Cemetery in London. And um, she's a very strong-willed person. And as she's dying, she just says, no, I won't go. And this act of negation actually sort of suspends her between being properly alive and being properly dead. And so she's been stuck in her flat as a ghost. And so this chapter describes the process of becoming sort of a better and better ghost. Elspeth Noblin had been dead for almost a year now, and she was still figuring out the rules. At first, she had simply drifted around her flat. She had little energy and spent a great deal of time staring at her former possessions. She would doze off and reawaken hours, perhaps days later. She couldn't tell. It didn't matter. She was shapeless and spent whole afternoons rolling around on the floor from one patch of sunlight to another, letting it heat every particle of her as though she were air, so that she rose and fell, warmed and cooled. She discovered that she could get into small spaces, and this led to her first experiment. Her desk had one drawer which she had never been able to open. It must have been stuck, because the key that unlocked all the others didn't work on the lower left-hand drawer. It was a shame. It would have been handy for keeping files. Now, Elspeth drifted into it through the keyhole. It was empty. She was slightly disappointed, but there was something about being in the drawer that she liked. Being compressed into two cubic feet gave her a solidity that she quickly became addicted to. She didn't have separate body parts yet, but when she crowded into the drawer, Elspeth felt sensations akin to touch, feelings that might be skin against hair, tongue against teeth. She began to stay in the drawer for long periods, to sleep, to think, to calm herself. It's like going back to the womb, she thought, happy to be contained. One morning, she saw her feet. They were hardly there, but Elspeth recognized them and rejoiced. Hands, legs, arms, breasts, hips, and torso followed, and finally Elspeth could feel her head and neck. It was the body she had died in, thin and scarred by needle holes, and the wound where the port had been, but she was so glad to see it that for a long time, she didn't care. She gained opacity gradually. That is, she could see herself better and better. To Robert, she was quite invisible. And of course, it's this Robert who's going to spend the whole book pining for her and making numerous mistakes because he's not entirely rational due to grief. <laughs> so. it's, it's a fun book. It's all about death. <laughs> it's a book which seems to draw on a lot of kind of Gothic traditions and fairy traditions with the, the, the ghosts and the twins and the graveyard. And I just wondered, what were the kind of influences when you started writing it? Were there any particular literary models that you thought, that's something I can work with and adapt to my own uses? One of the things that inspired it was um, Wilkie Collins' The Woman in White. Mm -hmm. And he has a thing for doubling. Yeah. Um, and that definitely inspired a lot of structure and, and characters for my book. Um, also Henry James, um, Turn of the Screw right. and um, Portrait of a Lady. Portrait of the Lady seems rather more unusual as an influence on it because with Turn of the Screw you can certainly see this um, psychosexual drama in which the ghosts are part of it. But what was the specific thing with the, the Portrait of a Lady? Just the Americans uh, abroad? In yeah, the Americans come abroad, run amok, naive Americans <laughs> screw up when they get to Europe, yeah. <laughs> and Highgate Cemetery becomes a kind of character in the book in its own right, and you did a lot of research to sort of, and, you know, it's a place you love very much. Can you talk a bit about what it was like trying to put that very specific place into a book? Yeah, um, when I first imagined the book, the very beginning of the idea of the book had to do with a character named Martin, who is stuck in his flat, just as Elspeth the ghost is stuck in her flat. Um, and he actually lives upstairs from her. Mm -hmm. And he has obsessive compulsive disorder and is based on somebody that I was dating. And um, <laughs> who I ran into much later and he doesn't seem to have read the book. <laughs> <laughs> or, or possibly just didn't recognize himself, I don't know. But um, 
Yeah, so it began with this notion of a, of a man who is trapped in his own place. And I had sort of randomly decided that he lived in Chicago in a neighborhood called Uptown, which mm -hmm. itself is wrapped around a cemetery. And having placed him there, I suddenly thought, well, is that the best cemetery? Can we get a better <laughs> cemetery than that? And then I thought of Highgate that I had visited in the 90s and how astonishing that mm. place is. And I thought, oh, that'd be so cool. You know, boy, the research you could do there. And so I called them out of the blue, not knowing that they get five or 10 calls a day from random people wanting to do. Not just random novelists. Not even, no. Well, I mean, in my time at the cemetery, they've had calls from Japanese television and Australian film people, and they've had fashion shoots. They've had, it's been amazing. They, they pick and choose their projects, but I was just this unpublished novelist person, and I sort of blithely called up and asked, and uh, I was put through to Mrs. Jean Pateman, who the book is dedicated to. And initially, Jean was not that enthusiastic about me, and so I said, well, could I just come and meet you in person? And she said, yes, I could come and meet her. And so I had the most terrifying interview with her. And I, in talking to her, realized that she was the book on the cemetery. She was like a human encyclopedia of this place. <coughs> and she had been one of the original friends who got together to save the cemetery. And mm -hmm. so she had been very closely involved with everything that happened to it starting in the late 70s, early 80s. And there was hardly anything written. I mean, this is, we're talking 2003. There was no Wikipedia. You couldn't just Google it. Nothing was happening out there on the internet for this place. And here was this amazing woman who could tell me everything I wanted to know. And so I just kept coming back and gradually we became friends and um, she was super. She let me base the character on her, which to me is the ultimate act of trust. I mean, sex, no big deal. Base the character, yeah, wow, that is intimacy. So, um, and she was super about it. I mean, she didn't get all strident and demand changes or anything. She was, she was, it, you know, it was like having somebody sit for their portrait and, and when you're all done, they come around and they go, yes. And she was like that, it was just wonderful. Lovely. You, you said there that you were just this unpublished novel person. Um, so the idea for this predates The Time Traveler's Wife as well. But yeah, um, yeah, I finished Time Traveler in um, January of 2002. And I had, <coughs> excuse me, I had the idea for this um, about six months before I finished that book. Mm -hmm. And as I say, it sprung from knowing, knowing this person who I was dating. Um, who, was, who was also, in many ways, super spectacular. He himself is a great writer. And uh, yeah, so I had sort of had this thing brewing and, and in the summer of 2003, before my first book was published, was when I was calling the cemetery and trying to get them to... And did it change with the success of Time Travel? Did that sort of open the door slightly or...? No, no, I mean, none of them were evaluating me in terms of, oh, you know, famous, not famous, a good bet to write a good novel, nothing. They were just, uh, basically, they just wanted me to be respectful. And it is very respectful, but it, it conjures the place, but it doesn't sort of <laughs> manipulate it or use it for um, unpoetic ends. It's, it's yeah, beautifully I achieved. I hope not. <laughs> um, with Time Traveller and the huge success that that was, did that make it more difficult to write uh, Her Fearful Symmetry? Were you conscious of the kind of inner critic at the back of your head saying, it's got to live up to this incredible book? One of the ways that I was afforded some space to deal with that was the fact that, unlike many writers today, I was sent on tour for like eternity. Um, <laughs> and it was, you know, being somebody who published a novel kind of later, I mean, I'm obviously not a little sprig of a 20-something. Um, as a visual artist, you don't get set on tour. You don't run around with your paintings and you know, do this. And uh, so that was, that was new to me, this whole business that you make something and then you promote it for two years. So I got to see the world and meet a lot of people. And Neil Gaiman. 
Neil Gaiman, among many others. And um, so that gave me this really strange sense of there being actual readers out there, which with the first book I didn't have, I was just amusing myself. I was writing for a tiny circle of friends who I thought I could sort of casual into reading it. I think maybe 10 people read it while I was writing it. So that was my audience. Um, with the second one, because it took so long, because I was hardly ever in a, in a still place where I could sit and concentrate, that really helped because I got to do much more research and think much more. It's nice to do things over a long period because you just have many more ideas mm -hmm. and you understand that maybe your first ideas were not the best. So you, you have a better process. This is, this is yeah. me justifying why I don't have a new book out. Um, <laughs> I mean, it is almost like a, a curse that people are demanding more and more and more of the authors. And you know, for something to be worthwhile, it's probably not gonna be something you just dash off in three months that... Well, some people, I, I can think of several people whose three-month novel probably would be fantastically worth reading, you know, Joyce Carol Oates. Um, Stephen King, I don't know how long it takes him, but some people are maniacs and they can do that and that's like their natural speed. Um, mm. I wander off and have a coffee and then I answer a little bit of email and then I draw a picture and then I go write a paragraph. It's kind of bad. <laughs> <laughs> Not when the results are like this. One thing that kind of connects the two books, I, I was yesterday chairing a book called The Enchanter by Leela Azamzangana. It's a book about Nabokov, but she said, all love stories are transgressive, and that's why Lolita had to be this story this way. And it struck me that both your books have been about kind of transgressive love affairs, and that's a way of talking about love in its most sort of wonderful senses. Is, is that a fair comment? Were you, were you always trying to write something that had that transgressive edge to it? I would certainly like to think that what I do passes some kind of boundary of, mm -hmm. of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm certainly always trying to get out of ordinariness so that I can turn around and look back at it. Um, certainly Time Traveler in particular is full of domesticity mm -hmm. because, well, I'm not the sort of writer who would do a space opera or, or something that was one science fiction premise after another. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it's more interesting when strangeness is coupled with ordinary life. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of the unheimlich, the uncanny. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the both, both books do take this idea of a love affair and the things that would normally crush a love affair, what seems to sort of thrive in both these books, the temporal dislocation of Time Traveler's Wife, in her fearful symmetry, can love actually be stronger than death? Mm -hmm. And again, was that a sort of deliberate intention on your part to say, let's look at these extreme states of, of love as a way of reflecting on it more generally? I suppose you could say that, but I have to say that if, if, if I could sort of show you a little slideshow of all the people I've dated, you would say, oh yeah, you know, she's just reporting back <laughs> from the front lines of dating. Um, so I'm always attracted to people who are brilliant and crazy. So, you know, I mean, one of the things I did that I was proud of in, in Symmetry was that I gave Martin a really excellent marriage. And, uh, you know, no matter how peculiar his daily life is, he still has this woman who really loves him. And, and but part of the impetus of that narrative is that she puts him in a situation where he's going to have to actually confront the obsessive compulsive disorder. And that, that I think, is perhaps the most moving thing in, this, in the book, that this normality is what brings him back to being a functional human being with a lot of diversions and yeah. circuitous roots. And it struck me that in the books, the characters all yearn for some kind of normality, but feel that they're excluded from it. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that as a, as a theme that you've explored. I mean, is it, does, does Audrey Niffenegger yearn for a, a sort of normality that doesn't involve book tours and graveyards and painting? Well, I certainly do love all of those things. I mean, somebody says, come to Edinburgh, I'm here. Um, yeah, I mean, the one I'm working on at the moment is about a woman, a girl, she starts off as a girl who has um, hypertrichosis, which is where you're completely covered with hair. 
you, you sort of, there, there yeah. have been real people yes, with this. Yes. I'm not, this is not some supernatural thing that I'm <laughs> making up. Um, but you do look a bit like a werewolf. And there have been very famous people with hypertrichosis, like Jojo the dog-faced boy, and people who have been circus people, or, you know, at the moment there's a little girl in, uh, I think she's in Brazil, and there's wonderful YouTube video of her first day of school. She's so sweet. Anyway, so, I, I, when I first saw that, I almost thought, oh, there's, there's my Lizzie. But of course, she's a real girl. I shouldn't, I shouldn't try to so that's get her into my universe. But yeah, the, the thing that I guess appeals to me about, about all of that, the, the strangeness and the ordinariness together, is that I, I do experience life that way. I mean, I get hung up on how peculiar things really are if you really pay attention. Mm -hmm. So for me, because it takes years to write a book, it's a form of sustained attention, which is a way of loving something. And the more you get into the story, the more these people become dear to uh -huh. you, even though they don't exist, which I guess is a way of saying it's a bit crazy. So, did, so I hope that comes through in the book, you know? Did all the characters in her fearful symmetry become dear to you? Because without giving me too much of the plot, it involves something really that most people would think of as a, as a terrible criminal act. Mm -hmm. And um, could you still feel sympathy for your, your ghost with what she's done well, by the end of the book? Yeah, I mean, without giving away too much, um, what's happening to Elspeth is that she's losing her humanity. She's losing her empathy. She's losing, she's losing whatever it is that stops us all from being monsters. And so, by the end of the book, she, she's a monster. Um, but one thing I'm doing in there is all the characters have wildly different arcs, and some of them initially seem dislikable and become more and more human and more mm. good. And some of them start off seeming like perfectly fine people that you'd like to hang with, and by the end of it, they're really they've transgressed so far that you can't really approve of them anymore. It's what makes it such a compelling, and you know, the, the ending still lingered with me you know, a year after I first read the book as being a very brave and, and not perhaps what people might have expected from you, given The Time Traveler's Wife. It's, a, it's, a slight, it's painted with darker hues, this book. Yeah. Um, though not for every character. It's, it's sort of as though every character's got their own ending. Mm -hmm. um, and, and some of them who seem to be having sad endings, the character is happy about it. Um, it turns out okay for them, really. Yeah. And yeah. being very interested in ambiguity, that to me was very satisfying. I do get a lot of email from people saying, what? So, um, you know, it might not be satisfying for every single person who reads it. Can we turn on a bit to the, <coughs> the graphic novels? Time Traveler started as something you thought might be a, a graphic novel project. I, I had done two graphic novels prior to that. That's one was The, the Adventurous and, and one the was The Three, three Ancestral Sisters. Sisters. Yeah. And the beginning of doing Time Traveler, um, I, I, I make these books by hand. So the original editions of um, The Adventurous <laughs> and The Sisters, um, there were 10 in each edition. And they're leather and they're all letterpress and that kind of thing. So it took a year to bind all the copies of the sisters. And so while I was, you know, sewing, um, I was just kind of randomly making up little time traveler-esque stories. Mm -hmm. And so that, it, it originally, you know, you, you sort of initially think of the thing according to what you know how to do. Mm -hmm. And it just dawned on me that if, if it was going to be that fluid in, in time, pictures don't do time signals very well. I mean, if you look at painters' attempts to represent time, like if you go back to the medieval period when they would represent the same <coughs> character over and over again in, in one frame and stuff like that, it's clunky and weird. And even comics, which is a fantastic form and can do a lot, it's just harder and slower. Mm. And I just decided that words would be best for, for something like that and that people would fill in in their own heads, there would be a lot of gaps to fill and that the reader would be very agile and would be able to do that. The Night Bookmobile kind of does it in the opposite way, that it starts as a short story and became 
one of your handmade books and now is, is the graphic novel here. Was that a difficult process to sort of take it from the sort of prose version and embody it in art? Something that was interesting was that um, I, the Guardian asked me to make a comic with some kind of literary bent because Posey Simmons was off doing something fun. Uh, I, think, I think she must have been making um, Tamara Drew at the time. And I had recently um, experienced uh, having a movie made from my book. And while I was not involved in that process and never saw the movie, I did read certain iterations of the script. So I was thinking about the problem of translation, mm -hmm. you know, how something starts as one thing and becomes something else, and pretty soon it's something else entirely. And, and it, it's like a game of telephone where it changes and morphs, and pretty soon you've got surrealist, mm -hmm. you know, dinner party chatter. Um, and so when I was trying to adapt my own work, I thought, okay, well, here I can be faithful or not, depending on what the comic needs. Mm -hmm. So it was an interesting process to do because I think comics are just one step away from movies. Yes, I mean, they're often thought of as storyboards. Yeah. I just want to, slightly before we talk about this in more detail, just cut back there. You said that you haven't seen the, the Time Traveler's Wife film. No. And is that a policy or is it just a... I don't know if it's a policy or not, but in my head that movie is glorious. And, <laughs> and so, like, it's possible that the real movie that people actually saw, some people said it was wonderful, and some people said, oh, no. And for every person, the movie is what it is. And I thought, well, the movie in my head, as soon as I see what's really there on the screen, that movie that I imagined would be wiped out, because I'm really visual and I have trouble forgetting what things look like. And so I just thought, well, you know, sometime when I'm like 90 and I'm ready to die, I'll watch it, and then, like, if it's really great, I'll be so happy. And if not, well, you know. There's not long to go. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely adore the Night Bookmobile. It's an incredibly elegiac, wistful story about what books are and what books mean to us. So, for the audience that probably don't know this, this Night Bookmobile is a, a strange, surreal van that the character sees several times in her life that has got every book she has ever read in it and it struck me as being kind of like Borges that you seem to be sort of channeling some of that yeah. Argentinian postmodernist fiction was that uppermost in your mind when you were doing it yeah 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 no it's it's a huge Borges ripoff um how many of you have read Borges show of hands okay let's do a little explaining about Borges then um so Georges Luis Borges was um an Argentinian writer who was the director of Argentina's National Library. And many of his works of fiction uh, have to do with language and dictionaries and encyclopedias and libraries. Um, so all these ideas he had about structuring information and, and it's, they're all very spooky and crazy and, and the surrealists loved him. And, yeah. So my story is about this young woman who has her own personal bookmobile that kind of <laughs> follows her around and pops up occasionally in her life. And actually the direct inspiration was H.G. Wells' um, short story, The Door in the Wall, which is also about things you long for and they present themselves at inconvenient moments. But um, yeah, with Borges, um, there's always this element of perversity, longing, and this deep desire, which is all directed at the world of stories and, and yeah. writing. Like the Book of Sand that had infinite pages, and if you saw a page of it, you could never find it again because it had infinite yeah. numbers of pages. It had that always built into it, that sense of loss and of bereavement. And, and this does this absolutely perfectly as well. That it's, you say in the end note to it that it, it began with a dream as well, that you sort of developed some dreams that you'd had as a child. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? It's, the, the particular dream that morphed into that, um, it was one of those dreams where you find an extra room in your house. Do y'all have those? Yep. It's great, isn't it? Especially if you live in a small place. Um, so, so this particular dream was set in my grandmother's house, and she had one of those huge rambling kinds of houses. And her house was in Michigan, in this rural area, and it really did have secret passages. 
there was a closet with a hole in it, and I don't know where that hole ended. Um, so it's a strange spooky house, and um, in the dream, I found this extra room kind of behind the kitchen, which turned out to be heaven, or, or something like it. And it was this enormous library, and it had plush carpeting and a grand piano, and it was sort of like better than any library you've really ever been in, um, and potentially had every book. And uh, yeah, so that was one of those disappointments when you wake up and discover that no, that's not going to be accessible. I completely agree that heaven ought to be a library. It's, yeah. It seems the well, now people probably feel that heaven would be your Kindle or something, but... I don't yeah, I can't just, quite you know, that I know, I was thinking about this earlier, like how the internet can never be a place and how if we could just make it into a place or if we could get real small and go in, <laughs> then it would be okay that all the books were electronic. Yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, so yeah, I've been thinking a lot about physical books my whole life because I make them, <laughs> but also about libraries as places to be. Mm -hmm and what it would mean if every word you ever read manifested itself inside a Winnebago camper. I mean, just how you would feel about that. I mean, I don't know if it's everybody's fondest dream to be confronted with a lifetime of reading choices. I mean, maybe for some people that might not be good. But my, my idea was that this would be something so addictive that you would almost turn away from normal life and become completely wrapped up in this kind of strange afterlife. In terms of the artwork, I mean, having read your previous works as well, particularly the three incestuous sisters, it seems that there's some influence from people like Aubrey Beardsley in terms of the, the composition. Who are the other artists that you kind of admire and, and imitate in these works? I thought there's bits in this as well with um, Marcel Duchamp where you had almost the nude descending a staircase and oh, yeah. The, yeah. the iterations again and again. So yeah. you just tell me a bit about the sort of artists that you admire and, and what you take from them when you do your own graphic novels. Yeah. Well, certainly Aubrey Beardsley is the big number one influence because he got a hold of me when I was 14. And so I started trying to draw these very Beardsley-esque things, you know, literally with pen and ink and doing all these very retro. My high school teachers it's, thought it's I was Quite Weird. a challenging thing to have at the age of 14. I mean, Beardsley is sort of so queasily sexual and... Oh, well, yeah, 14. I mean, 14 is crazy and strange. Yeah, yeah you know, I, well, I, it's funny, my mother gave me this book. Um, <laughs> my mom is also an artist, and um, when I was 14, I was out of school for a couple of weeks with an earache, and I had just started high school. I had probably not been in high school more than two weeks or so, and so... I kind of got sidelined and was lying on the couch with, you know, the saltines and the seven up. And so she went to the library and got this immense stack of art books. And Brian Reed's wonderful book on Bridgley was one of them. And I had no clue, you know, wow, I can't believe this is out there. I can't believe mom has given this to me. Um, <laughs> so yeah, she, she has, my mom has introduced me to a number of things. I mean, she's a textile artist, so she mostly works abstractly. Mm -hmm. Um, but other people that I have been really interested in, Horst Janssen, who's a German artist who died uh, in 1996. Um, Charlotte Solomon, anybody? She was uh, also German. She died in Auschwitz at the age of 26. And she made this thing called Life or Theater, which was at the Royal Academy a few years ago. And it's her autobiography and her family's story in pictures. And. Uh, her family was pretty wild. They had seven suicides in the generation, her mother's generation. And they, most of them threw themselves out of windows. So the first section of the book is about all these aunts and uncles and grandmothers the defenestrating themselves. Yeah. And then it moves on to more slightly normal things. And then the Nazis show up. And it's, it's the most astonishing thing. And... Um, you know, she, and it's interesting too because it starts off very tightly done and very minutely rendered. And mm -hmm. as she realizes that time <clears throat> is running out, it gets looser and looser until the last few pictures are just this frenzy of, of fast drawing. Um, yeah. And the, the, the night bookmobile, you say in the end note again that it's part of a sort of bigger sequence on libraries. Can you tell me just a little bit about, the, about what this bigger project is? I mean, as a, as a bibliophile, I find this just such a charming, lovely, heartbreaking book. I can't wait to hear what the other aspects of this world are. 
Well, um, yeah, coming attractions, the Guardian just asked me if I would write them a short story. And so it seems fitting to give them the next part of the library, which is called Moths of the New World. And in the story, Moths of the New World is a book. And in the world of the library, there's basically four types of being. There's readers, which would be us. There's librarians, who are all dead. There's authors, who could be either dead or not dead. And there's books. And when an author writes a book, it creates a kind of platonic ideal book that ends up in the library. And those books have souls and can look very much like people. You can mistake them for people. And so in Moss the New World, um, Moss the New World is the title of a book. And she gets um, misshelved and ends up in a branch library in Chicago <laughs> and doesn't quite know what to do with herself because the only people like people she's familiar with are librarians. And so she finds herself impersonating a librarian in a branch library. Anyway, I won't tell you any more, but that's... <laughs> that's absolutely wonderful. Just before I open it up to the audience, you'll have heard that public libraries are really under threat at the moment. That Can you tell us a bit of me? I mean, the library is obviously something very important to you, and it obviously helped in your education. Um, it seems to me a, a really kind of vandalistic thing to get rid of the public libraries, and I just love your thoughts on that. Yeah, just me screaming. Um, I mean, yeah, it's sort of paralyzing to me to even think about it. My, my branch library that I grew up in um, back home almost was closed, and we all had to go yell at the people who run the little suburb. And so then they closed the other branch library, and it was sort of like, oh, we can shoot that child or that child. So that was traumatizing, and I'm sure we'll go through it all again the next time a budget rolls around. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's back to this idea of, of books and places, of everybody not being isolated by their computer. I mean, you get this sense of the community of the internet and that you can reach out through the internet and and converse and contact other minds and mm -hmm. read books and you can do all those things, but you can't, you can't be physically present. I mean, there's things libraries do that you can only do in your body in a place. Yeah. And virtual won't cut it. And it would be a shame if the children didn't grow up with those things. I mean, I could walk to my library alone from quite an early age and go get a book. And the librarians knew me, and they'd say, oh, well, you read this, why don't you read that? And you know, okay, Amazon does that, but it's not the same. No, <laughs> and I was just gonna ask you about that. The, 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 the big thing that the library can do is that you can browse it and you find things that you don't know you were looking for. Absolutely. Whereas being told, because I have to use it a lot at work, you know, you've liked this book, therefore you will like this one, or rather we would like to sell this one to you. It's, it's a completely different way of browsing. Yeah. And, and the, the sense that future generations won't have that glorious haphazardness that yeah. the but library I mean, is. My library, which was the Evanston Public Library in Evanston, Illinois, um, the first time I ever had a book made by somebody by hand, the Northwestern University students, my goodness, that's embalming the library. <laughs> this made me cry. Um, yeah, these students had made books. They, they did collages and they wrote in them and they sewed them together. And I remember being about maybe seven or eight and, and being shown this box of books that people had actually made. And I thought, oh, I, I could do that. You know, I mean, it was like this life-changing thing. And who knew? I mean, it was just this serendipitous thing that the librarian said, oh, hey, look in that box. Well, you know, the internet's not going to do that either. So. No. Can I have the lights up and some questions from the audience? Um, there's somebody just there to kick off with. If you wait for the microphone to turn up so we can all hear. Uh, hello, Audrey. Uh, earlier in the weekend, Alistair Gray, when he was asked uh, whether he preferred writing or drawing, he actually said that he viewed both as being a holiday from the other. Um, is that, do you have that sort of similar feeling or is it more a case of just finding the, the right form for a particular story? Yeah, it always depends on what stage I'm at with something. 
Um, I find it hard to begin things. So whenever I'm beginning to work on something, that's the horrible chore, and the other is the wonderful promised land that I'll get to when I'm done with the horrible chore. Um, but I have to say that doing comics was lovely because they're so interrelated that you can just hop back and forth and, and hardly feel the separation. So yeah, that was, uh, that was exciting. Definitely do it again. Uh, there's somebody right at the back there. Sorry to make you run around. Hi. Having read both your books, it felt like um, her fearful symmetry had a very definite end with the characters. Whereas um, the time traveller's wife, I was really longing for the next chapter, really. Um, and having been introduced to Henry at a later stage in his life, I wondered if you had plans of maybe writing about Alba's life as a child being a time traveller. I suppose one should <coughs> never say never. If I ever get a fantastic idea that I can't resist, I would do it. Um, but otherwise, you know, if it was just sort of a mediocre idea, I think everybody would be kind of mad and disappointed. So I wouldn't do it just to do it, but, you know, maybe if something was irresistible. Um, I know that in this day and age, nobody, nobody can let a character just be in one book. Um, you know, you have to have you know, Batman Returns and Batman Returns again and, oh my God, it's Batman. <laughs> um. So apparently in comics they call it a dirt nap now. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody actually dies, they just have a dirt nap and then they get brought back again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you see the, if we come down to this lady at the front. I was interested in the twins in Our Fearful Symmetry. What research did you do to have twins, one with a, a heart in the left side and one with a heart in her right side? Uh, mirror twinning is a real thing. And I was first introduced to it in a short story by Dorothy L. Sayers. And uh, at the time, I thought, oh, surely not. And then looked it up, and indeed, it's a real thing, although very rare. Um, because I had gotten into this notion of doubling for the book, at the very beginning, um, Martin, the character with OCD, was sort of all alone in his flat. And I thought, well, that's going to be a boring book if it's just one person in a flat that never leaves. So I thought, well, he can have a young friend that comes and visits, and that was Julia. And Julia acquired a roommate who was this really whiny, irritating person named Valentina. And at a certain point, I thought, well, this person is so annoying to write, and she won't be much fun to read about. And so I just sort of squished her up and reinvented her as, as a twin, which, uh, which was much more interesting. One thing that was interesting to me about writing about twins is that um, several of my acquaintances, who I never had any clue were twins, revealed themselves. They outed themselves as twins. <laughs> And so I, I actually got to ask questions of, of real life twins, although not mirror twins. But um, a couple of them actually were identical twins out of, out of these three. And I said, well, how come I don't know that? That's ridiculous that you have an identical twin and I have no clue. And each of those people said that, um, that when they hit around college age, they had to make a decision about whether to be inseparable or whether to try to have separate lives. And in both of those cases, they chose actually to live in separate cities. And neither of them told me why, so I don't know that. But it was interesting to imagine. Let's see, are there any just in this row here? Good evening. I was wondering if, from all the books you read, there was one that you absolutely adored and think, oh, I wish I had written that. I wish I had thought of that. Thank you. Oh, there's lots. Oh, oh can I say two? <laughs> okay. One is, one is super famous, and you've probably all heard of it. It's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell by Susanna Clarke, which I think is just the most brilliant, genius thing of the last however many years. That's, that's a true work of imagination. Um, there's a new one that hasn't quite been published yet. It's coming in September called The Night Circus. 
Oh, the Aaron Morgenstern. Yeah, that's, that's going to be huge. Yeah. We're all going to have 10 copies and be pushing them on friends, I think. Um, that one is about dueling magicians who each, they, they've played their duel out over a number of generations and they each pick a young person and train them up as a very potent magician and then set them at each other. Sort of like dog fighting or something. It's like immoral and weird. And so in this iteration, each magician picks, one picks a young boy and one picks a young girl and they train them up and when they finally meet each other, they fall in love. So that screws up the whole duel. And uh, the thing I liked about the book was how beautiful it is. I could, the, the woman who wrote it is a visual artist and her descriptions of the things in the circus, the magical circus, you, you just, you would, you would kill to be, to go there for one night. And so I keep hoping, okay, this has got to be a movie, you know, at least, at least I'll get to go see. But the things I could see in my head through her descriptions were so wonderful and so I, I was, I was literally in a huge snit because she wrote it and I didn't. Just, just to continue on from that question, there's a lovely panel in this where we first see the, the row of books and you've got real books right the way through it. Were these Audrey Niffenegger's books as a child or were they just a sort of selection of ones that you particularly wanted? And if so, which one of these would you select out of it? Oh, let's see what's in there. Um, yeah, that's a hard pick. Yeah, I... There's an obscure one in here that not too many people have read, so I'll recommend that. It's called No Flying in the House. I have no idea if it ever came out in the UK. Um, but it's by Betty Brock, and it's about a three-year-old girl who shows up on the doorstep of this insanely posh house with a three-inch tall white talking dog on her shoulder. And the dog's name is Gloria, and she's a fairy, and she's the guardian of the little girl, and her job is to get the little girl ensconced in this house of this total stranger and raise her. And uh, it's, it's strange and cool. Are there some more questions? There's somebody right about there. Was that somebody there as well? If we go there first, then we'll come to you afterwards. Uh, hi. Um, I was wondering about if you could talk about the chronological um, aspect of the time traveler's wife. I was fascinated how not only a great story, but having worked out the detail of, you know, did you have the story first and then have to apply the timeline, or um, what, what came first and how, how much work was it applying the timeline of what age Henry was and where he, where, how did that all work in your mind? Um, the story came first. The story is actually pretty simple. I mean, Boy meets girl, girl meets boy, courtship, marriage, etc. Um, working out the times was kind of fun. I had a perpetual calendar, and so what I was doing was kind of mapping how everything fit together, and occasionally one would have to make little adjustments. Um, like at one point I changed Henry's birthday, which was a complete nightmare. But on the other hand, um, my agent, Joe Regal, who's sitting here, had this brilliant idea that Henry should have been born on June 16th, which is Bloomsday. Yeah. So, you know, you got to do that. So little things like that, which would make the whole fabric of the thing sort of wiggle. Uh, but on the other hand, it's just like doing a jigsaw puzzle. I mean, it had that kind of amusement and, and satisfaction. Um, there's a website that's worked it all out. Um, which, you know, which I couldn't be bothered to do, but this, this wonderful guy has um, put it all down for you in case you want to check on it. And uh, anyway, I link to that on my website, so if you go into the links section of my website. Yes. Um, I just wondered if you always work on one book at a time, or if you have more than one going at the time, or a couple or something. I've always got a number of things going at the time, yeah. So yeah, at the moment I'm, I'm working on the Chinchilla Girl, I'm working on a ballet, um, Story for the Guardian. Uh, there's a Ray Bradbury tribute anthology coming along that I'm doing something for, which is a thrill. And um, I'm trying to write a screenplay for her Fearful Symmetry, which is highly amusing, because what do I know about screenplay writing? But it's, it's, it makes me have a lot of respect for the people who write movies. 
do, do the ideas cross-fertilise when you have different projects running simultaneously, or are you able to keep them quite discreet? They kind of bleed into each other, and I don't usually notice until later. Like, characters get similar last names, or suddenly everybody's got a lot of hair, or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> there was somebody up at the back there, in the top left-hand corner. Uh, I was really interested um, in your work first as an author and then as an artist as well, which obviously come together in the graphic novels. Um, but I was wondering, like, when you're writing prose, uh, do you have specific images in your mind? And equally, when you're painting, do you feel that you're telling a certain story? Certainly, yes, to both of those things. A lot of my images have... Um, either literary inspirations or just phrases that they spring from. And certainly when I'm telling a story, I can see it very clearly, and I, I hope eventually that the reader will be able to see it also. Something I've always longed for, there's a Vim Vendors movie called Until the End of the World where somebody invents a device that records people's dreams. And uh, it looks suspiciously like an iPad. But, um, I mean, pretty soon we'll all be able to just jack in all of the matrix and record our dreams. But what I've always wanted to see is what people imagine when they're reading, not just my work, but anybody's work, you know, how closely my image of Sherlock Holmes accords with somebody else's, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, at the moment, that's kind of unknowable, but I'm sure the technology is coming along anytime soon. So, yeah, for me, I mean, somebody was asking earlier, you know, would you rather write or draw? And, and for me, they're so close. I mean, I think some people are extremely off in the word realm, and some people are extremely visual. And I feel like I'm right in the middle where those things meet. And however, whatever I might be doing to express that, it's just more a matter of what seems like the best tool for, for telling that particular story. There was uh, somebody just here in a blue shirt. And then we'll come back to this side. Hello. Um, you seem to be quite interested in people with strange conditions, for example, the hairy girl and the twins. Is that something that you actively do research on and go and see what's out there? Or is it something that well, sticks in your mind whenever you read about it? Oh, I just date them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a little facetious, but pretty true. Um, <laughs> but I also, I, I know a lot of people who I suppose might be considered a little off the beaten track. Um, I, I have friends who are, I mean, dis disabled is such a strange word. To me, they're not at all disabled. They're sort of more than, um, and, and so clever and, and great. And I guess part of it for me is that if you really sat down and paid attention to just about anyone, they would be out of the ordinary. Um, I mean, I think it's the level of attention that we give each other that makes something, um, just, I mean, that's what artists do, you know? We sort of, we sort of direct your gaze toward the amazing thing, which, otherwise might seem normal. And in a way, normal is kind of a bad word, too, because nothing is really normal. I mean, how could you be normal? You know, you're, you're this human consciousness that can do such amazing things. Are so still dating people? Sorry? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it, it seems that in all these conditions that you've described, it's things that when you read it at first, you think, well, that just must be fictionalized. And it gives you a sense of the world being a bigger place than we thought. I just had exactly the same thing with Adam Levine's novel, which cites a particular syndrome, and I thought that must be made up. And either it was made up and he'd put up a Wikipedia page as well. <laughs> uh, but it, it, it is that sense of the world being a bigger place than we sometimes think that yeah. comes across so beautifully in both the books. Well, I mean, you just never know. I mean, after Time Traveler was published, I got a... Um, a phone call, actually, from a scientist who works at Northwestern University, which is quite near where I live. And she was working on um, mice 
and she was, she was dealing with um, genes that have to do with our sense of time. And so she had so far at that point discovered two genes that, that help us, you know, sync with, with time. Um, and she told me that if she, if she found a third one that she would, she would name it after Henry. Um, and I, I never heard from her again, so maybe she's still out there trying to do this, but, um, you know, clock genes is, is what they're called. Yeah, yeah. So. We've got time for another couple, because there's somebody just here, and then we'll go to that person there, and I think that'll be about as much as we have time for. Hi, um, Evanston, Illinois, Central Street, North Branch. Rock on! Yes. <laughs> anyway, um, in both of your novels, you know, Henry and his wife and Elspeth and her twin, do you ever, while you were creating these, did you ever feel like you were too far out there and you needed to yank back in in terms of sort of the fantastical, or did you just go? I can't say that I feel like I've gotten out there as far as I might like to. I, I would like to push that more and, you know, not let go of reality entirely, for sure. But, I mean, when I interview Kelly Link tomorrow, Kelly has achieved a level of out there that I aspire to. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but she is, she is a genius of the strangeness of the ordinary. And so, yeah, there's, I think there's more to be done in the direction of weirdness. Yeah. Just hit this. Must be the National Library this time. <laughs> um, I was at an art show the other day and we were talking with an artist and our question became, when do you know when you're finished? You look at a painting or a picture or a book. When do you know that you are done? That is a very good question. And if you have ever made something, you probably have had this experience where when the thing is in the first stages and as it goes along, there's this part of your brain that's completely devoted to that thing. And it's like a little radio station in your head that just plays novel or painting or whatever it is all the time. And you're, you're constantly tuned into that, at least with part of your attention. And as the thing is close to being done, that thing that you've been channeling gets quieter and quieter until finally there is dead silence and you know you're finished. Um, I work through a process of questioning. So for example, you might start off with this notion of a man in his apartment who has OCD and can't leave. And so the first question is, well, who is this person? And how old is he? And where does he live? And why is he by himself? And what does this look like? And you, do, you, you know, it's like being a toddler, and you just ask and ask and ask. And every decision yields to more questions. And when there's no more questions, then the thing must be complete. And of course, then there will be editing, and the editors will provide a lot of things that you, you yourself couldn't. But that, that process of ending, I have never found to be a problem. I think we've got time just to squeeze in one last question from somebody who had their hand up for a while there at the back. Thank you. Um, most time travel stories that I've come across and read or in movies or whatever, they've always had this background story of trying to alter events. And you quite categorically didn't do that in your story. So there was a sense for me of inevitability about the whole story that there was no choice for the characters in it, that they were just treading a path. And I found that horrific in some ways, brilliant in others, and I really loved it. It's not a criticism. But I wondered if you meant to put that kind of stark contrast of what normal time travel's usually about. One of the most exciting parts of beginning has to do with making the rules. And at the beginning of Time Traveler, the, the most basic rules were that it couldn't be a voluntary thing. It couldn't be hopping in the Wayback Machine and setting your course. Because I didn't want Henry to be an awful person who was always leaving his wife. 
deliberately. And the other rule for me that was really important was this business of not being able to go back and change anything, or for that matter, go into the future and change anything. Because after doing a little bit of reading in sort of lightweight physics, because I can't hack the math of real physics, but anyway, doing some research, it dawned on me that what I wanted here was a block universe in which everything coexists. And so if everything coexists, it, it probably means that nothing can be changed, that everything's happening once and only once and you can't alter. And to me, that seemed really important. It seemed like the difference between tragedy and comedy. Because if you can infinitely alter things, what you get is back to the future. Where, where there's kind of an element of farce yeah. and there's this mad scramble to accomplish whatever it is they're trying to accomplish. And so to me it seemed like everything meant a lot more if Henry was like us and had to live his life as it came with the added element of seeing it coming. And yeah. so, yeah, to me that was what made it. I'm afraid we are out of time. Now, Audrey is going to be signing books in the London Review of Books bookshop next door. I'd be really grateful if you could let us get out there first, um, because I know there's going to be a really huge queue afterwards. Uh, and it just remains for me to say thank you very much, Audrey Neffnecker. I'm sure the audience wants to join in. Thank you. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk. Dot UK.